What's going on, guys? This is the Masters of Life podcast, a five times a week interview-based podcast where I interview truly amazing people on their habits, skills, and stories to motivate, push, and inspire action. If you haven't already, check out my Master Crowd, the ultimate media kit platform for professionals, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs. Mastercrowd.io, where you can catch the videos of my interviews, my blog posts, and my new book, Yes I Can, The 15 Mindset Secrets of Inspiring Entrepreneurs. Enough to chat. We got a great one today, just like every other. Let's get it. Let's go right here on the Masters of Life podcast. What's going on, guys? Welcome to this week's episode of the Masters of Life podcast. I'm Christian Perez, the host of the podcast and also the founder of Mastercrowd. I am with George Chanos today. George Chanos is the former Attorney General of Nevada. He is the chairman of Capriotis for over 10 years. And he is an author and speaker, and I have the pleasure of speaking with him today about politics, his life, and most importantly, what industries are up and coming. George, welcome to the show. Thank you, Christian. It's great to be here. Yes, it is my pleasure to have you on here. Without you, I wouldn't even know about such an amazing platform that we can do face-to-face. -face. So let's go ahead and fast forward to yes. the entrepreneurial journey. Yes. Did you start a business before becoming chairman of the Capriotis? Um, so I had a number of businesses throughout my life. I had done a number of entrepreneurial things throughout my life, um, both before I practiced law and after I practiced law. Um, when I was 18, 19 years old, I, I formed a company called International Marketing Systems, IMS. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, had stationery created, and uh, it, was a, it was a souvenir. Uh, project. I went into the Las Vegas hotels and casinos, right? And uh, I was going to UNLV. And I went to the purchasing directors at the local hotels. And I said, you know, you have these matches and cocktail stirs and napkins that you produce and that you give away within the hotel, right, for promotion. Mm. And the goal of these, so I'm an 18-year-old and right. I'm talking to this purchasing director and I'm saying, so the reason that you're doing this is to get the word out about the hotel. You want people to know about Caesar's Palace. You want them to know about the Stardust. You want them to know about the Dunes, right? And so I said, the, the faster you can move those, that merchandise out of your hotel and spread it all over the world and have mm -hmm. it sitting on coffee tables in everybody's home all over the world, the more people will know about your hotel, the better off you'll be, right? Yeah. So he's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, I can help you with that. So what at 18-year-old. At 18 years, yeah. So what I want you to do is I want you to give me a box of matches, a big box, right, um, with hundreds of however many come in it, right? I want you to give me a big box of napkins with your logo, and I want you to give me a big box of cocktail stirs with your logo. Mm. I'm going to do this at... 10 hotels throughout Las Vegas, and I'm going to create a package, an assortment package. So I'll have an assortment of cocktail stirs from the 10 most famous hotels in Las Vegas. Yours will be one of them. I'll have a napkin package from the 10 most famous hotels in Las Vegas. Yours will be one of them. And I'll have a matchbook collection in, that people can buy in, in these gift shops. And so I created these collections, and I sold them into Las Vegas gift shops at 18 and 19. And I had my friends sitting and working on the floor, um, putting together these boxes packaging, with me. Yeah. yeah, packaging these boxes. And I would buy pizza, and everybody would assemble boxes. And 
Uh, and that was it. That was my first, uh, wow. that was actually, that wasn't my first business. My first business was to go back to when I was 10 years old. I had show, snow shoveling, lawn mowing, uh, garbage collecting, candy sales, anything that I could do to make money when I was 10. I had more money as a 10 year old than any 10 year old I knew. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So let's take a step back here because I want to dig deep a little into that. Yeah, yeah. So you had this entrepreneurship spirit yeah. even since you were young. Yeah. Where did you get, first of all, the marketing know-how, the articulation to deliver your message, and basically the drive that I do need money when you had parents that would take care of you? Well, so first of all, um, I've had three passions in my life that have okay. been constant throughout my life. Um, one is, is law and politics. So I'll categorize that as one of the passions. Okay. Business is the second passion that's been with me throughout my life, and art is mm. the third passion that's been with me throughout my life. So I'm also an artist, I paint, I do sculptural assemblage, but these are my three passions, mm. right? So where did I, so first of all, you said, where did you acquire these aptitudes when you had parents that were providing for you? Mm. My father grew up in the Great Depression. My father, um, they used to take, uh, you know, butter would come in a pad, and they would scrape the butter off of the off the uh, uh, packaging because mm -hmm. they wouldn't waste it, right? Mm. And he would tell us these stories because he didn't want us to waste things, right? Mm. And I never got an allowance, right? So um, my father didn't give out money, right? right? Um, I had a roof over my head, I had a ride to school, I had clothes on my back, I had all the things that I needed. Um, but if I wanted something extra, if I wanted, uh, you know, uh, a game or a toy or mm -hmm. something like that, I would save up for it and I would buy it. Wow. And so um, if I wanted money, it was very clear I had to go out and get it. Mm. And so, you know, there were plenty of ways to, to get it. I, li I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Wisconsin. It snows every year. The driveways, you know, I would shovel my uncle's driveway and he would pay me, mm. right? And so I had said, well, if he'll pay me, somebody else will pay me, yeah. right? The, he doesn't want to shovel his driveway, right? Wow. He wants a young guy to do it. So I would get my little cousins, and I would say, okay, I'm going to go knock on these doors, and I'm going to ask if we can shovel the driveway. And I'd go knock on a door, and I'd say, can I shovel your driveway for five bucks? And the guy would say, yeah, and I'd take the five bucks, and I'd take my two little cousins who were younger than me, I'd give them each dollar, <laughs> and I'd keep three dollars. Capitalism. And the, and the three of us would shovel the driveway. Now, I, did, I was the oldest, so I did most of the work, right. so I, and I got the job, so I got the three dollars, yeah. right? But they each got a, they each got a dollar. Yeah, nice. Yeah. You have your whole marketing team, and then oh, you yeah. have your employees, your perfect. workers. So I learned about business early on, and then I thought, well, geez, if I can do this with snow, snow shoveling, mm. I can do this with lawn cutting, right? Mm. I can go out and I can cut lawns. And so I did that, and then I, I thought, you know, there's this apartment complex that, that has all these apartments, and, and they have these dumpsters out in the front where everybody has to come and bring their garbage down to the dumpster. And I thought, you know, I bet you people don't like carrying their garbage down to the dumpster. I'll bet you there's a bunch of people that if I went and knocked on their door, they would give me, you know, a quarter, 50 cents to go yeah. take their, you know, so I got my little friends and we went and knocked on doors and we took down people's garbage and threw it in the garbage thing and they'd give us a quarter or 50 cents and wow. we'd do that all day and by the end of the day we'd have you know ten dollars wow so there was no fear of rejection there was no fear that they might 
You know, this is another interesting thing. My dad talked to me about when he sold Encyclopedia Britannica mm. door to door, right? What is that? It's, it's, <laughs> I'm yeah, just yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's a library of books that, you know, today you have your cell phone, you learn everything on your cell phone. But in, back in the day, you, you would have a, a, uh, a collection of these encyclopedias. Mm. And there were salesmen that would go door to door and they would sell these encyclopedias into homes. They would say, mm. you know, ma'am, do you have the Encyclopedia Britannica? Your children need to learn from this, right? And so people would buy it for their homes. My dad is a young man before he had children when he was, you know, in his late teens, early 20s, he would sell these Encyclopedia Britannica door to door. And uh, he would tell me stories about how you know, nine out of 10 people would close the door in his mm. face and he would be dealing with constant rejection. So when you talk about me knocking on a door and getting rejection, I knew that that, that was part of the deal. I knew mm. that, you know, maybe nine out of 10 people would say no, and that's okay. Mm. I don't need those nine. Yeah. I just need the one that says yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it turned into more of an expectation at that point. Yeah. Because you were expecting rejection I was expecting already. rejection, yes. That's amazing. Yeah. So. Let's flip to your mother. Mm -hmm. What did she, did she grow up in that time as well that your father did? Did she have the same frugality that she did? What was her view on money and rejection? Yeah, and so my mom was the exact opposite. My mom was, um, grew up in Elbow Lake, Minnesota. She was a beautiful Norwegian woman and she was a model in mm -hmm. the 50s. And, okay. and uh, so she was a career woman back in the 50s which is very unusual, a divorced career woman, right? Mm. So she was, uh, she became quite successful. She had her face plastered all over billboards and, and bus terminals in Chicago, right? So she was a successful model. She was very creative. Mm. I got a lot of my creativity from my mom. Is that where the love of art came from? Maybe, yeah, and maybe from her and I'm not sure, you know, but, uh, but my mom was, uh, You've probably not seen the movie Anti-Mame, right? Mm -hmm. There's a movie called Mame. It's a f it was a famous Broadway play. And there's this woman who's basically sort of an eccentric um, uh, socialite. And, <laughs> and my mom kind of fit that bill, where she traveled around the world. She um, engaged in business when it was mostly a man's world. Um, she didn't have a lot of fear. Um, and she was a very good woman, um, but she was the kind of woman that wanted to live every moment of her life. She wanted to just like take the, the, whatever life had to offer and extract it from life and, mm. and enjoy it. And that was very different than my dad. My dad was very grounded, very Midwestern, very Greek, very traditional. And, um, and my mom was the opposite. So mm -hmm. I got both. I got the grounding and the traditional uh, conservatism of my dad, and I got the artistic, uh, experimental, um, kind of uh, make the most out of life uh, view of life from my mom. Mm. And we, so when we had lunch, we talked about the pendulum, yes. right? And so we talked about your, your parents right now seem both sides of the spectrum. Yeah. And so I think we'll go on a little bit later about politics and yeah. how that is exactly a reflection of our political system yeah, right now. Very much. But before we get into that, I have to know And it can create something good, right? Yes. If you if you blend it. Yes. If you blend if, it. If you're gonna be 
cocky about it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but when it comes to art, I have to know, do you spend a lot of money on art? Are you one of those people? No, I'm one of those people. So, so I got into art, I create art. I spend a lot of money on creating art. I'm mm. not one of those people that spends a lot of money on buying art. You wouldn't buy a banana taped to the wall? No, no, okay. no I wouldn't. Um, nor would I create one, right? Okay. So, so um, I, you know, I painted when I was very, very young. Um, like 10 and 12 years old, I was, I was you know, drawing and painting. Sometimes you see on the back of magazines where they have a picture of a pirate. And they say, can you draw the pirate? And if so, draw the pirate and send it in and see if you qualify for our art school, right? Yes, okay. So I would you know, draw the pirate, right? <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I got, I got interested in art uh, at an early age. I used to do um, paintings for girlfriends in high school. You know, Smooth it's a clever way to, to get, get dates. And, um, and then when I got older, um, for example, when I bought my first house, or when I was student body president at UNLV, I painted uh, paintings to go on the back wall of my office, right? So I wanted my office to be decorated, and so I painted the paintings. When I bought my first home, I went in and I looked, and the walls were all white, and I thought, I need to cover these walls with art, but I can't afford to go out and buy the art mm. that I want to buy, so I'm going to have to paint it. So I went out and I bought the canvases, and I bought the paints, and mm. I painted, and I taught myself how to paint. And cool. you know, you can teach yourself pretty much anything, and you can develop skills through practice and repetition. So creativity is, is not something that is simply born. So creativity is something that you can actually develop. If you want to be creative, and if you want to learn how to paint, paint. Mm. Paint more often, right? Mm -hmm. And the more you paint, the better you will get, just like anything else. If I right. want to learn how to shoot free throws, mm -hmm. shoot free throws, right? The more free throws I shoot, the better I'm going to be. The more canvases I paint, the better I'm going to be. Right. Practice and repetition develops a skill set. So I developed a skill set. and. Uh, um, I don't buy paintings for a lot of money. I try to sell them for a lot of money. <laughs> nice, nice. Because you know people will buy it. I do, yeah. and I've I've sold a dozen paintings for over five thousand each. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so two things. One, yeah. props to you for knowing that to stroke a girl's ego, <laughs> that is super. That is business one hundred and one. Yeah, yeah. Right? Vanity is yeah. is a, it sells. Yeah, yeah. Two. I, want, I, I watched this TED talk where this gentleman was talking about the public education and yeah. how it limits, because it was in, during the Industrial Revolution is when public education and yes. universities, their main goal is to nurture and grow industrial yeah. workers. Yeah. So now, nothing has changed. It's still limiting the creativity of individuals. What is your view on public education, and does everybody need it if it's not a trade that they're interested in going into? Yeah. So I have a very dim view of public education today. Okay. Um, I think that the public education model uh, has failed. Um, I think that it was created at the turn of the Industrial Revolution, right? And the reason that it was created was to move society from an agrarian society to an industrial society, right? So in order to learn how to operate these machines, in, Lord, in order to learn how to be part of this new economy, that was going to be created, moving from an agrarian economy to an industrial economy, we needed a public education system. And the public education system hasn't changed a great deal since 100 years ago, 
right? It's changed, there have been modifications. They use laptops in schools today. They didn't do that 100 years ago. But generally, it's a classroom setting. There's a teacher out in mm -hmm. front of the class. They bring in the kids. They sit 20, 30, 40 kids in a class, and they're taught by a teacher. Maybe there's a teacher's assistant, right? Mm -hmm. And that's essentially the public education model. They might go out for recess at younger ages. Uh, they may have you know, an assortment of classes that they rotate through and they have multiple teachers, whereas at the turn of the century it was a single schoolhouse teacher. Today you might have eight or so teachers that teach you different subjects. Um, but the model is generally very similar. In the private sector, it's a, it's a predatory model. And the predatory model is they want to get money out of you, right? Mm. Um, even public education. Kids are coming out of uh, public schools, state-run schools uh, with significant debt, um, and private institutions are even worse. They're coming out with more debt, right? Some mm. schools cost as much as $75,000 a year, right, to go That's to Harvard crazy. or Yale, right? Yep. So, so kids are, are accumulating this vast amount of debt, right? Almost 50% of college graduates today cannot find employment that requires a college degree. So imagine going into a program where you're accumulating hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of dollars in debt. Mm -hmm. You're at the end of that program obtaining a degree, a piece of paper that basically says you've gone through this program and satisfied all of our requirements. And you take that piece of paper and you go out into the real world and the real world says, we don't care, mm. right? We'll give you the same job at Ann Taylor that we would have given you before you went to college. Now, do you think that's because the bachelor degree is saturated where they now require masters, doctorates, PhDs? I think, I think that, that, the, that the degree is becoming increasingly irrelevant. All degrees. Yeah, and frankly, all degrees, yeah. I think that, frankly, knowledge, knowledge is becoming increasingly irrelevant. Intelligence is what's important, right? So, so let me explain that for you, because it's a big concept. When I was a kid, I used to go to the library to get my information, right? Mm -hmm. um, Today, I don't need to go to the library. Today, I have a phone. Mm. And I can go on my phone and I can search at my fingertips all the information, all the knowledge that the world has is out mm. there and it's accessible to me, right? Virtually all of it through the internet, right? Or through connecting with other people who have that knowledge through my phone, right? Mm. I can access all this information. So I can access all this knowledge. Today, Elon Musk is working on a company called Neuralink, right? Where they'll, they'll implant these, these microfibers into your brain, That's wild. right? Yeah, they're one-fifth the diameter of a human hair. And, and Musk says you'll be able to control your brain activity on your phone, okay? Wow. Yeah, you'll be able to control your mood. You'll be able to control PTSD. You'll be able to control your memory. Um, all of these applications are supposedly several decades away, right? Ray Kurzweil at Google, head of AI for Google, says that by the 2040s, that's 20 years away, 20 to 30 years away, by the 2040s, computers will not be the equivalent of the human brain. They'll be a billion times more capable than human intelligence. 
And by the 2040s, our neural cortex will be connected to the cloud. So we won't have to even go on our phone to access knowledge or information. All of that knowledge and information will be available to us instantaneously. You'll think of a question and the answer will come to you, right? Today, the, in the 1920s, the half-life of a engineering degree might have been 30 years, right? In 30 years, half of what you learned would become irrelevant obsolete. or untrue or obsolete. Mm -hmm. In the 1950s, the half-life of an engineering degree slipped to 10%, or 10 years. Mm -hmm. Today, the half-life of, of an engineering degree is five years. Within five years, you go today, you go through a five-year program, and pretty much by the time you get out of that program, mm -hmm. a, a significant portion of what you've learned has already become either irrelevant or obsolete or surpassed by something that makes it irrelevant, mm. right? So why are we chasing these degrees and why are we chasing knowledge? If knowledge is going to be instantaneously accessible to us, what we need to chase is the ability to think critically, intelligence, the ability to analyze information. We can acquire information. Mm. It's very easy for me to show you how to acquire information. What, what I need you to understand is how to use that information. How do you draw from this discipline and this discipline and that discipline? And how do you bring those diverse pieces of information together mm -hmm. to form a new idea or breakthrough knowledge or something mm -hmm. that solves a problem, right? Mm -hmm. That's intelligence. That's critical thinking. You know, that's, that's complex problem solving. That's the skill set that you need. I don't believe that's being taught in today's educational institutions. I don't believe that that's being taught in universities. I don't believe that that's being taught in the private sector uh, model that exists today. I believe knowledge is being conveyed in those mm -hmm. environments. And I can get knowledge on my phone. I don't need to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get knowledge. And so I think what you're speaking is, is, is an absolute fact. You know, what you believe is an absolute fact. Yeah. What do you think it's nice to have the confirmation. <laughs> yeah, no, because you said I believe. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's 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 not so whether I, I believe or you believe. It's fact. Okay. And so, what if people say, "I don't know what I don't know." So even though I have access to the information, that doesn't necessarily mean I can become a successful engineer yeah. without going to the education system. Yeah. So I'm not saying you don't need knowledge. I'm saying knowledge is accessible everywhere to you, mm -hmm. and and. You need, to, you need to access it, and you need to become more knowledgeable, and you need to learn, right? You're, you're going to be engaged in lifelong learning, right? So I read voraciously every day, right? Every day I'm consuming information. Mm -hmm. So you need to be consuming information. If, that's, if, if, if I was conveying that, that's not what I meant to convey. What I meant to convey is that you don't need to go to a university and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to access that information. Not mm. that you don't need to consume it. You absolutely need to consume it. You need to devour it, mm. right? And then when we reach a point where um, it's accessible instantaneously by asking a question, then you don't need to devour information. You'll have the mm. information. But today, you need to devour it. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so when it comes to critical thinkers, there's a yeah. lot of them out there. What do you think is keeping us from progressing in the public education, in the private education? Greed? I think that, uh, I think that um, greed is part of it. And what I've seen is that we have these kind of um, fiefdoms, these, these uh, sectors that, that people occupy and build 
and develop a kind of uh, investment in, and, and then they want to promulgate that institution. So, for example, um, today in the educational system, there are hundreds of thousands of people that work in the educational system, right? Mm -hmm. um, they derive their employment through the educational system, right? Some of them uh, have endowed public education institutions given them millions or tens of millions of dollars. Some have built big sprawling campuses and have large real estate portfolios. Some have huge endowments. Mm -hmm. Some are connected through those huge endowments with Wall Street, right? So those endowments put their money into Wall Street, right? So you build these systems and you build these institutions that take on a life of their own. Mm -hmm. And they're resistant to change. The same could be said of politics. You look at politics, yeah. right? The Republican Party and the Democratic Party have created these institutions. Mm -hmm. um, they're invested in these institutions. All the politicians that occupy these positions are invested in these institutions. All the volunteers that go and try to get their candidates elected, all the people that are using the system to network and to build their careers are invested in the political system. Mm -hmm. I used to be one of those people, right? I grew up in that system. I used to go to all of those events to network and to build my business and to you know, engage in political activity, engage in networking. People are still doing it, mm -hmm. right? And so you know, they're, they're connected, their connection to the system makes them biased towards mm -hmm. wanting to continue the system, wanting to see the system continue. And then when you have polarization, when you have partisanship and you have teams. Essentially, we've turned it into a sport. They've mm. called it a blood sport. Politics is now uh, referred to, quite sadly, as a blood sport. Mm. Um, but this intense division uh, between political parties, so you've got this group that is very vested in seeing it continue to thrive and to gain power and to have uh, dominance. And then you have this other group that wants to also survive and wants to spread and wants to promulgate and wants mm -hmm. to grow and wants to have power, right? And these are two teams. And, and then that's divided the country and we've become tribalists that are mm -hmm. you know, wedded to one of these teams. And, and the truth is that neither of these teams is going to get us past the finish line, mm -hmm. right? Neither of these teams is going to deliver what all of us need. I mean, think about it. It's, it's common sense. We have 335 million people in this country. If you have 170 million of those people that think one way and are on one team, and 170 million of those people that think another way and are on another team, right? How can either one of those teams get that entire group mm -hmm. past the finish line? It right. can't, it can't. The, the answers lie between the teams. The, the answers lie within and between the teams. So there are things that the Democrats believe that are true and that are worthwhile and that ought to be pursued. And there are things that the Republicans believe that are true and that are worthwhile and that ought to be pursued, right? And, and so if you, if you go with one team, you're excluding all of those benefits from, that the other team would have had to offer you're also excluding their representation. And, and anyone that's studied group dynamics or you know, how groups interact and work and make progress will tell you that if, if, if I make you a part of my team, Christian, 
And, and yet I say, you know, so you're on our baseball team, Christian, okay? But you don't get to bat, mm. okay? Everybody else gets to bat, but you don't get to bat, Christian, right? Are you going to feel part of that team? Nope. Are you going to want to participate in that team? Nope. Are you going to have any interest in belonging to that team? Nope. Okay. So if you have a, com a government that is run solely by Democrats, you've got 170 million people that are going to say, nope, 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 mm. I don't want to participate. And if you have a, a, a government that's run by Republicans, you're going to have 170 million people over here that are saying the same thing. So we need leadership that understands that their obligation is to represent all of America, mm -hmm. right? You mentioned the pendulum, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and we'll get into that whenever you'd like. But that's what this is about. It's about the ebb and flow of power between these two constituencies that make up America, right? Mm -hmm. America is a community. We, we have a contract. We have a bond. It's called the Constitution. Mm -hmm. We all play by that rule, right? And that forms our community, right? And so we should be behaving like one big tribe, right? right? Not small tribes. One big tribe is a very healthy, a very uh, nurturing, a very sustaining, a very supportive uh, um, concept. Small tribes that are warring factions against one another mm -hmm. is a very hostile, very divisive, very toxic, very uh, self-defeating concept. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have today. And, and where we need to move is into one tribe, ultimately into one perhaps global tribe, which right. is another whole story. So in other words, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like our government, a republic government, seems like a sophisticated civil war. Yeah. It just seems like it doesn't seem effective if we're fighting each other and the nation isn't all one tribe. Yeah. So I guess what is preventing us from, I guess, digressing, right? Becoming, it seems like we're not going up. What's causing down. us to digress? What's, what's preventing us from excelling or yeah. succeeding, right? And so part of it is think about your brain. It's our human brain, right? So... So there's a great book out uh, called Sapiens by um, Yuval Noah Harari, okay? And in Sapiens, he talks about um, how Homo sapiens became the leaders of the planet, mm -hmm. right? How did we evolve above other animals to take our place as, as the dominant creature on the planet, right? We're not bigger than elephants and gorillas, we're not stronger, mm -hmm. right? There are stronger animals out there than the human being. Um, we're not necessarily even the most intelligent of, of the human beings, uh, I mean of the, of the uh, creatures that are out there. We have no way of measuring the intelligence of a dolphin or the intelligence mm -hmm. of an elephant. Um, they have certain skill sets that we don't have. They can see things much farther away. They can mm -hmm. smell things that we can't smell. They can hear things that we can't hear. They have skill sets that we don't have, right? Mm -hmm. Who's to say that we're more skilled or more intelligent than, than some of these other creatures? One of the things that distinguishes us, us, that Harari points out, is our ability to communicate and our ability to collaborate, mm -hmm. to work with each other, right? So other animals don't work with each other as well as human beings. They, they, they don't have the ability to c communicate and collaborate, it appears, at the level that we have, right? They don't have necessarily the ability to think ahead mm -hmm. and to plan ahead, 
right? They're more reactionary, it appears, mm. right? And again, when I say it appears, because there's limited information that we had have about how all of these species uh, think and, and behave. Um, but based on what we can observe, these seem to be distinguishing characteristics of human beings. Human beings, it's been found, are good at working with each other, communicating and collaborating in small groups, up to about 150 people, mm. okay? And the reason for that is that when you, when you exceed, when you're at about 100 or 150 people, these are people that you can actually know, people mm. that you might have met, people that, that might you know, be friends of yours, people that are in your circle, right? So these people that are in your circle, right, you can work with and collaborate with and communicate very effectively. When you start getting into a different circle that's completely outside your circle, a group of people you've never had anything to do with, it gets more difficult, right, to mm -hmm. communicate and collaborate, right? If I were to send you to Paris and you were in the middle of France mm -hmm. and you didn't uh, speak any French and uh, you were a fish out of water, it would be a little bit more difficult for you mm -hmm. to co communicate and collaborate with that group until you learned French, until you assimilated, until you made these relationships, right? Mm -hmm. So it all makes sense so far, right? Yep. All right, so we develop, Harari says, these fictions. We create these fictions that allow us to collaborate and communicate more effectively. A perfect example of a fiction would be the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. These are fictions. We create mm -hmm. these organizations. Corporations are fictions. Religions are fictions. Governments, uh, America, the mm -hmm. concept of America is a fiction, right? So that we've created to bind people towards a common end, right? Mm -hmm. So if we all see ourselves as Americans, right? You're traveling through Europe, you meet an American. Mm -hmm. there's, an, there's an immediate affinity, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you're an American, I'm an American. We have something in common. Mm -hmm. Because of that thing that we have in common, I can communicate more effectively and I can collaborate more effectively with that person, okay? Mm -hmm. Oh, you're a Democrat, I'm a Democrat, right? Oh, you're a Chargers fan, I'm a Chargers fan, right? So we create these, these things that cause us to have a bond with one another. They've, they've done experiments that show that I can take a group, a, a, an audience of 500 people, and I can divide them in two and I can give half of them yellow t-shirts and I can give half of them blue t-shirts. And the yellow t-shirts they could be mixtures of Republicans, Democrats, blacks, whites, Hispanics, you name it. Mm. The yellow t-shirts are gonna feel that they are part of a team mm. and they are gonna behave like they are part of a team. If there's a contest between them and the blue t-shirts, they're gonna wanna win. Mm. The yellow team is gonna wanna win, right? Even though it's a mixture of all these people, right? We can develop these affinities on things as, as meaningless as a t-shirt, as meaningless as our hair color. Oh, you have red hair, I have red hair. Mm -hmm. Geez, we have a connection, right? So these connections, these connections are what allow us to collaborate and work together. We have been tearing apart these connections, okay? So our assaults on America, our assaults on the Constitution, our assaults on, on uh, our political structure, our assaults on um, uh, the, the statues of Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, tears apart at that fabric, that fictional fabric that binds us, 
right? Mm -hmm. and, and causes us to, to move into smaller tribes, right? And develop relationships in smaller circles and become more insular, right? And that, uh, and the creation of these fictions that, you know, the Democratic Party is, is the only party that you should, you know, consider, and these Republicans are evil, horrible, racist, you know, bigots, and, and, and whatever you want to think about them. Or, you know, these Democrats are terrible socialists, communists, and, and uh, lazy, or whatever you want to think of them, mm -hmm. right? So, so by denigrating each other's team, um, we are becoming more polarized, less able to work together. By dividing into smaller tribes, we're becoming less unified, less able to work together, less able to collaborate. Um, so a lot of this accounts for what you're seeing today is, mm -hmm. is the deterioration of these fabrics. And I believe that there are people and groups who actually want to see that happen. They want America to decline. Mm -hmm. They don't like America. They don't believe America is good. They believe that America, you know, may be evil, or that it's involved in all these, you know, foreign aggressions, or it's uh, an imperialist type of, you know, country, and so they may be very critical of America, right? Mm. And so these constant assaults on America um, have have weakened the fabric of the country and have caused greater division, and that's what you're seeing today. You're seeing a break apart, uh, a. a, a destruction of that of that social fabric so we talked about when we had lunch a little uh, yeah. we already got into politics but when it comes to Donald Trump right we talked about how the best way to stay in power is to enforce that division and so what do you think Donald Trump's thinking what's his plan here and what's his political I guess advantage to creating all this division well first of all Donald Trump didn't create the division okay Donald Trump may have fanned the flames of the division, and I believe he did do that, but he didn't create the, di the division. I believe the Democrats created the division, right? And I believe that you can trace it back to uh, as early as Ferguson, Missouri in, the, in, in 2014, leading up to the 2016 election, that the riots in Ferguson um, were, and, and the media coverage of those riots, and the reports that Democratic donors spent tens of millions of dollars, tens of $33 million to be exact, it was reported, was, was uh, funded into groups that paid, paid, paid protesters to come to Ferguson, Missouri from Chicago and New York. Okay? This, was, oh. this was reported in the media um, that these groups were being funded by Democratic do donors. Um, I'm not going to name their names, but, but their names were named. And, um, and so that began the division. You then saw rioting that was occurring in Ferguson, in um, uh, Minneapolis, in Chicago, in Milwaukee, um, all throughout the Midwest. These, these riots are what elected Donald Trump, in my view, right? Because these groups in the Midwest, like Wisconsin, where I was born, right? These groups looked at these riots and, and then saw this man, this candidate, who was saying, I'm the law and order president, mm -hmm. I'll restore law and order, right? And they didn't want the, the, the rioting and, and, the, and the police stations burning down and mm -hmm. the businesses being broken into, and they wanted law and order. That's part of the social compact. That's part of what a society needs. They mm -hmm. need law and order. 
Why did the Democrats do this? They did this to turn out black vote during the 2016 election. The Democratic Party cannot win an election for president of the United States without turning out the black vote. Mm -hmm. They must win the black vote. So how do you get the black vote motivated? How do you get them to turn out? How do you get them to get off their ass and go to the polls and vote, right? You make them angry. Mm. You make them angry at, at another person, right? So this guy's a racist, mm. right? That's a motivator, right? That'll get you up to vote, right. right? And then Trump starts to see that the antagonism that's going on is actually helping him, mm -hmm. right? The polls start saying that, you know, your law and order theme is doing really well, right? Mm -hmm. Because of all this dis disarray, mm -hmm. right? Because of all of this angst and all of this uh, frustration. Um, and so, you know, people want law and order. You're, mm -hmm. you're selling the right thing. So he fanned those flames. He basically, you know, pushed his agenda that I'm the law and order guy, I'm the supporter of police, I'm the supporter of the military, and these guys are lawless thugs, mm -hmm. right? And so he used it, right? So, so they both, neither one of them is innocent here. Right. You know, to think that this is all Donald Trump is ridiculous. To think that this is all the Democrats is equally ridiculous. It's both of them. They are both playing us. Do you think the Democrats, their hope is that the black voters go out and vote, but because of their heat and anger, do you think it might have a negative effect on the Democratic voting for minorities? I think a lot of people are uh, in that, uh, a lot of the black community that the, Democrat, that the Democratic Party wants to motivate and wants to get to go out on their behalf, I think a lot of them are smart enough to recognize that they're being played. And if you watch social media like I do, I watch it every day because I want to know what people in the thinking. world are thinking and saying. I want to know what people your age are mm -hmm. thinking and saying. And what I'm seeing is they're basically saying that, they're, that they've woken up. 40% mm -hmm. of millennials are politically unaffiliated. 40% mm. of your generation has said, fuck you to the Republicans and the Democrats mm -hmm. already. That's already happened today. All right. So you're waking up, you're figuring it out. You're figuring it out that neither one of them is doing what they're supposed to do, mm -hmm. that there's complete dysfunction and disarray that's occurring in Washington. And we should not put up with it. You should not put up with it. My generation should not put up with it. None of us should put up with it. Mm -hmm. If I were running a business, you know, if I were running a business and I had two competing teams on my business, first of all, I would never structure a business with two competing mm. teams who want to undermine one Each another other, right. to emerge as the sole victor right. and, and the sole victor decimates my other team, right? right. Well, so we, we as Americans are trying to have this country move forward. We don't need competing teams. Mm -hmm. We need cooperating teams, right? Mm -hmm. We need, we need the entire 335 million people in America to be well represented. We don't need somebody, you know, building a healthcare system like uh, Obamacare and then the next administration coming in and dismantling it. Mm -hmm. We don't need someone building a wall and then Democrats getting elected and tearing down the wall, right? Waste, That's yeah. dysfunction. Yeah. That's waste, mm -hmm. right? Make up your mind, right? Mm -hmm. Do it right the first time. Create right. a health system that's truly a good health system, right? I'm in favor of, of public health care. I'm in favor of free health care. 
I'm, I'm in favor of free education, but do it right. Mm -hmm. Do it right. It's not being done right. Yeah. You know? So, okay, so I have two things. Yeah. And I'm going to just tell me both. One, I want to talk about the Republican side of law and order, where right now it seems like Democrats are really portraying it as racism. But do you think that it's because of Trump's enforcing law and order that these instant unnecessary killings are a byproduct of you need to put your foot down and you need to show that the police are in control? Okay. The second thing is, do you think that's why Trump won? People wanted change. People wanted not Democrat or Republican. You're saying millennials don't associate with either. And they saw somebody that wasn't a typical politician, and they said, okay, maybe we should give this a try. Well, I think that, that, that first of all, um, I don't agree with some of your question, right? So your question is, you know, is, is, have people favorably reacted to Trump putting his foot down? Um, and, and that somehow Trump putting his foot down is the explanation for the killings and the police shootings that we're seeing. Trump has not begun to put his foot down, okay? He's not even begun to put his foot down. Um, and, and, you know, that's why we have riots in Portland and Seattle that are going on for months and months mm -hmm. and months, right? Somebody who puts their foot down doesn't let those riots go on for months and months right. and months, right? Trump has the power to... Um, to invoke the Insurrection Act, right? Where he could bring US troops on American soil and he could crush these, these protests if he mm. wanted to. He hasn't done that, right? He's actually shown tremendous restraint in, mm. in the way that he's handled this. He's allowed governors um, to supposedly handle this. And the governors in, in Washington, um, you know, in Seattle and in Portland are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not maintaining law and order. Um, so, so first of all, it's not Trump that's doing that. Police have been shooting, uh, you know, people for decades, right? Um, one of the big misconceptions about police shootings is that more than 95%, you can look this up, more than, you can look anything I've set up, more than 95% of the people that are killed by police have a gun. Okay. Have a gun. Okay. okay. So, in so their possession. In their possession. Okay. When they're shot. Okay. So, so the vast majority of these shootings are not shootings of unarmed, innocent people. Okay. They are shootings of people with guns. Okay. okay. That's the first thing to understand. Okay. Secondly, the notion that, that um, young black people are being targeted, right? Is, is, and that race accounts for this, this uh, um, disproportionate um, effect that this is having on minority communities. I don't buy that either. Um, I think that, the, that race is not the issue. Hmm. The issue is lack of respect for authority, right? Lack hmm. of respect for authority. When a police officer encounters you and they, and they tell you that you know, they need you to step out of the car, right? They need you to show them your ID. They need you to turn off your car, mm -hmm. right? They need you to keep your hands on the steering wheel, right? When they give you lawful orders, it is illegal to not follow those orders, mm -hmm. okay? So you're committing a crime by not following those orders, right? When, when you're doing that, when you're, when you're not putting your hands on the steering wheel, when you're futzing around, you know, looking for something, a, a, a job, these cops get killed every day, mm -hmm. right? By people who quickly grab a gun and shoot them, 
right? It happens all the time. They're trained about this, right? Relentlessly trained about this. They have families. They want to go home. They want to be with their children. They don't want to die, right? So, so you have to understand that when a police officer is approaching someone, especially at night, mm. especially on a, on a desolate road, you know, especially where they don't have backup and they don't know who's in the car and there are multiple people in the car, right? These are dangerous situations. These are life and death situations. The officer who's approaching the car is in fear for their life. They, mm -hmm. they don't want to get shot. So they're telling people to do certain things so that they don't get shot. Right. When people don't listen to them, when instead they're videotaping them with their phone, somebody in the back seat is moving around, mm -hmm. they don't know what they're doing, somebody is reaching into the glove compartment, that all creates increased risk, mm -hmm. right? If they're, if they're commenting while this is going on and being disrespectful to the police officer. Instigating. This is more likely, the police are human beings. Yeah. They're human beings, of course this is going to escalate. Right? Mm -hmm. When you're insulting someone and you're spitting on them or throwing water at them or, you know, acting obnoxious towards them, things are going to escalate, right? Mm -hmm. So the escalation is what evolves into an incident, mm -hmm. right? Um, I'll give you a perfect example. There was a guy named Kyle, I forget his last name, he was 17 years old, he was an A student, he was white. He was driving his car. And uh, the cop was following him. He saw on his license plate, the cop incorrectly juxtaposed two numbers or letters on the license plate when he called it in. So mm. he made a mistake. He called in a license plate that was a different license plate. Mm. Not intentionally, just you know, gave him the wrong numbers, juxtaposed a couple of numbers. Comes back, this is a stolen vehicle, mm. right? So now the cop thinks he's following a stolen vehicle, mm -hmm. right? 17-year-old white kid driving his dad's car, not a stolen vehicle, a student, right? No racism here, okay. guy's white, right? Um, the kid's not even mouthing off, really. The kid says, he pulls him over, the cop says, I need your license and registration. Why did you pull me over? Pulls out his phone, starts mm. recording the cop. Why did you pull me over? I need your license and registration. Well, I want to know why I'm pulled over. I didn't do anything wrong. Mm. The A student, the white A student, I didn't do anything wrong. Why did you pull me over? All right, get out of the car. Escalation, right? Kids mouthing off, will not give him his ID, mm -hmm. is filming him, pisses the cop off. The cop says, exit the vehicle. Mm. Kid says, no, I'm not exiting the vehicle. What did I do wrong? Mm -hmm. You need to tell me what I did wrong. And he's filming the is whole- Is that true? He's filming the whole thing. Well. The, the, the cop should have said what he did wrong. Okay. And you'll see at the end of the story that it didn't work out well for either one of them. Okay? Oh, okay. All right? So, so he's, he c continues to insist that the kid get out of the car. The kid continues to insist that he did nothing wrong, does not exit the car. Finally, the cop loses control, gets frustrated, pulls out the ta his taser, mm. and you can hear him say on the video, you can hear him say, fuck it and he shoots the kid with the taser, okay? Wow. Tases the kid, because he won't get out of the car, yeah. right? Now, the cop is doing three years in prison for that. Three years in prison. The kid has permanent brain damage. Who won? Nobody. 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 Important point. 
Okay, yeah. you can be right and be dead wrong. Mm -hmm. You don't argue with someone who has a gun mm -hmm. on the street. You don't badmouth them. You don't show disrespect. You mm -hmm. do what you're asked. If you have an argument to make, you make it with their superior, mm -hmm. you make it with the judge, you make it with your lawyer, you make it with your parents, you don't make it with the guy who's, who's on the street who has a gun, right. okay? In a tense environment, right? So these shootings, these escalations, these incidents, you look at every one of these cases. You look at George Floyd, you look at... Uh, um, I have to ask about Breonna Taylor. Yeah. So I only know what media is showing me, yeah, which, is that's, these cops, which is a big problem. And which is, so I want to ask you, what is your view on it? What do you understand about that case? And why is it not racism related? <laughs> well, because first of all, the cops uh, had a warrant, right? And uh, Breonna Taylor is in the house with a guy who's got a gun, right? The cops announce themselves according to a witness, okay. right? And uh, they end up having to break into the apartment. And as they break in, because the guy and, and Brianna don't answer the door, right? Mm -hmm. And they know they're in there somehow. And they break down the door and they go in. And the minute they go in, the guy who's in with Brianna Taylor, her boyfriend, shoots one of the cops in the leg, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So now you've got gunfire coming from inside the apartment towards a group of three police officers, okay. right? Who all have guns, right? What do you expect will be the reaction of those three police officers? Right. They're That's gonna true. shoot back, right? Right. So they do. And, and, and they don't know who's shooting, they don't know, you know where these bullets are coming from, but they're responding to it. Hmm. And you know, maybe they over-responded, right? May, maybe they shot far more than they needed to. But, you know, it's easy for you and I to say that, mm -hmm. right? It's easy for you and I to say that we're not on the other side of the door, mm -hmm. right? I, I spoke um, at the funeral of a, of, uh, of a police officer here in Nevada, Henry Prendes, right? Henry Prendes went and knocked on a door just like this in a domestic violence situation and, and you know, goes up to the house to try to uh, deal with the situation. And the husband, the, the guy who's creating the domestic violence, shoots him with a rifle before he even opens the door. The guy mm. is, is, is shot and he's laying on the porch and now he's held down, um, you know, uh, backup comes and they're trying to get in and he's held down in, in the ground because the guy's got a rifle on him and ends up dying. He's got mm. two, two young girls at home, right? So police officers don't want to die, mm -hmm. right? So, so part of the solution here is, you know, the, the, the entire emphasis has been on, on police training and police uh, um, uh, sensitivity training mm -hmm. and, and uh, anti-racism training and all these other, you know, things. But when you, see, when you see the lack of respect for authority that exists in this country. Mm. You, I mean, you see mobs in New York throwing water on police, children throwing water on police, right? Mm. You see Colin Kaepernick kneeling for the national anthem. You see you know, people tearing down statues of Abraham Lincoln, right? Mm. There's a lack of respect for American institutions, for law enforcement, for the justice system, for America as a whole, for police in particular, and this is, 
become a, per, a pervasive element in society. And the mindsets, the, what's happening to the mindsets of these children, right? How are these children going to interact with police in the future, mm -hmm. right? They're not going to respect them. They're not going to trust them. They're not going to listen to them. Right. Is that going to save more young black lives? Or is that uh -huh. going to result in more young black men dying? Yeah, the latter. I think the latter. Yeah. You know, and I'm arguing the latter. Yeah. So I'm, say, I'm not saying you let the police off the hook. I'm not saying you don't engage in sensitivity training. I'm not saying you don't engage in anti-racism training. I'm not saying you don't get rid of bad police. You need to do all those things. Mm -hmm. But you also need to understand that there are two sides of this equation, mm -hmm. right? You also need to instill that respect for authority in mm -hmm. our community, right? And, and this, this starts, this begins from the top, right? Respect for the rule of law. When, when, when Donald Trump does things that don't follow the law, when Hillary Clinton destroys 33,000 emails and doesn't follow the law, when, when uh, uh, um, Attorney General uh, um, Loretta, was it Loretta Lynch, I forget her I name, uh, meets on the tarmac with Bill Clinton to discuss you know, what Comey is supposed to be doing on his own, you know, these are all, these are all evidence when, when Wall Street bankers, you know, bring down our economy in 2008 and we're not watching a perp walk of, of dozens of mm. these guys going to jail. Where, where are all the guys that went to jail? Mm. How come none of these, they brought down the economy. How come none of these guys went to jail, right? right. So when you see all of these things happen, it chips away at people's respect for our institutions. It chips Which away. Which seems natural then. Well, it, it, it is a natural consequence, but it's a, but it's a horribly destructive consequence that has mm. to be reversed. So you need to reverse it by reinstilling respect for authority, by reinstilling the equal treatment under the law, right? Where mm. all people are created equally. Hillary Clinton destroys 33,000 e emails, she goes to prison. Just right. like the, you know, the, the Navy sailor who you know, does something with classified information that he wasn't supposed to do and he's sitting in prison, right? Mm -hmm. Why is he sitting in prison and she's not sitting in prison, right? right. So you know, it, it's, just, it's pretty simple stuff, yeah. right? It's, it's like the country needs a rule of law. Civilized societies need respect for the rule of law. That's a baseline. It should apply to everyone equally mm -hmm. and fairly, no matter how rich you are, no matter how powerful you are, no matter how poor you are, it should be the same, right? And, and this, if we had that model, if we followed that model, we wouldn't have what we're seeing. I wanna ask, at this stage in your career, do you find that the only way you get into investments or business deals now is when it's warm calls, like when it's a friend going to an investment pitch, or do you do cold emails, do you still respond to those? No, I, I um I believe that n opportunity knocks on everyone's door, but not everyone answers. So mm -hmm. there's, a, there's an interesting uh, um, line that I've come up with along that, those lines, which is knock, knock, who's there? Opportunity, opportunity, who? Opportunity lost. Oh, meaning, that's good. Meaning that if you have to ask, you know, what is the opportunity? It's probably already gone. You have to be able to see the opportunity. You have to be able to identify the opportunity, which means you need to be alert, you need to be observant, you need to see things before they happen. Mm -hmm. and, and so 
do I only respond to warm uh, invitations to uh, explore business opportunities? Absolutely not. I could meet a stranger on the street tomorrow and I could end up being business partners with them. There's, there's no warm requirement. Very cool, yeah. very cool. Yeah. I think that a lot of people lose that groundedness that you said that you learned from your parents and your father and they think that they're big time and they yeah. only answer to warm calls. Yeah, I'm not so. big time. I've got, I've got a cousin who's big time. He, 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 uh, um, he's a billionaire, he's one year older than me. We grew up together. If I ever thought I was big time, all I have to do is look at my cousin and, oh, well. <laughs> and realize that I'm, I'm not really that big time. Well, then I guess it's all relative, right? Mm -hmm. So let's go ahead and switch into more personal questions here. What is a habit or skill that you think made you different than the rest? Creativity and curiosity. So mm -hmm. from a very early age, I told you that I painted, right? So I, was an, I was, uh, had an interest in art. That interest in art... Um, and I had an interest in law, right? Mm -hmm. And when you pursue, and, and politics and business, and when you pursue these things on a parallel track, um, you start to develop certain proficiencies in each one, right? Mm -hmm. So you become better at business. You become a better lawyer. You become a better painter. You become more creative, mm -hmm. right? And that creativity can then cross-pollinate into business, and into law, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm negotiating a deal, um, I might be much more creative at generating options mm -hmm. on how that deal can work than the average lawyer because right. I have this artistic side and I have this creative side and I use it in my practice of law and I use it in business. I may, I'm working on a program right now called Limitless, which is a new form of learning. We talked about uh, education and, and how education is failing us, both in the public and private spheres. And so I believe that a new form of education is required. And I believe that it will come from the private sector. I don't believe that government will be the answer. I, don't, mm -hmm. I think anybody who's waiting around for government education to evolve to you know, meet the needs of the technological tsunami that's on the horizon, forget about it. Mm -hmm. Don't wait for government, okay? It's gonna have to come from the private sector. It's gonna have to come from creative business people mm -hmm. that think of ways they identify a need, right? I've identified a need. The need is change is coming. It's radical. It's going to create massive change. Mm. And people are going to need guidance and inspiration and direction and learning and development and networking and communities and resources. They're going to need all of these things. They need them today. They're going to need them even more tomorrow, right? So how do you address those needs? Well, you build an empowerment community, right? So Limitless is an empowerment community. You can go to LimitlessThinking.com. LimitlessThinking.com, and it's an empowerment community. And the idea is to draw from this amazing pool of resources all over the world, mm. of talent, right? There are people that have lived extraordinary lives. There are Sherpas that have climbed Mount Everest 25 times. Mm. There are Olympic athletes that have won multiple gold medals. There are billionaires that have made great fortunes. There are uh, social workers that have you know, helped countless numbers of people that are in, in need. Mm. What can we learn 
what can a young person like you, Christian, learn from all of those people, right? So today, you came into this environment, you came into this studio, and you looked around and you were surprised. You thought it was really cool. You thought this was you know, a really neat environment. There are so many environments like this that you haven't been exposed to that will enrich you if you are exposed to them, mm -hmm. right? You, you were inquisitive. You, uh, I told you that I had an advisory board meeting and you asked if you could sit in on the call, which is a great, great thing to do. You shut that down real quick. Well, <laughs> you couldn't sit in on that one, but, but, but if I find one that you can sit in on, you won't have to call me again. I'll mm. call you and I'll say, hey, Christian, I've got a board meeting that you can attend, okay? Mm. Just because you couldn't attend that one doesn't mean that I won't invite you to a future one, mm. right? So I like the fact that you're inquisitive. I like the fact that you're outgoing. I like the fact that you want to enrich yourself, right? Les Brown, who's a famous international speaker, said to me, don't try to lead horses to water. Mm. Look for thirsty horses. You've identified yourself to me as a thirsty horse. You've identified yourself as, the, as someone who wants to learn, someone who wants to get ahead, someone who wants to improve themselves. That's interesting to me. I'm looking for thirsty horses. I'm not interested in leading horses to water. I want thirsty horses to reach out to LimitlessThinking.com and I will help those thirsty horses. That's mm. what Limitless Thinking is about. Amazing. I, and I, I will bring leaders from around the world that are just like me that want to do the same thing. And together we will help. Mm. And that's a solution. And that's having an impact. And you don't have to be president to have that kind of impact. You can have that impact on your own. You can create something like that, Christian. You can create something that helps people, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, might be a new app, might be your podcast, might be you know, something else that you open up, mm -hmm. right? But it's, that's how we get ahead. It's, it's all of us giving a hand and lifting up somebody else to make them more formidable mm -hmm. so that they can give a hand and lift, lift up the next person. Right. Right? That's, right. How, that's how we do it. Right. That's and the answer. I haven't, you know, we haven't gone too in-depth yeah. into my new platform. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then we can talk, to, we can talk about it more. Sure. Right, off camera. But our new, my slogan, and we pivoted, is anyone can be a teacher. Yeah. And we're creating a social platform, an education-based networking platform, just like Limitless Thinking, where we can have anybody who wants to be somebody and have an expertise in something that they know and share it with the world. So great, great concept. Yeah, and so we'll talk about that later. But it seems like you've been a superstar since you were a kid. You're talking about everything stemmed from you when you were a kid. So this next question is, what lesson took you the longest to learn? Well, um, take care of my health has okay. taken me the longest to learn. Okay. Um, my dad used to say, my dad lived till he was 92. He died last year. And my dad used to say, George, there's nothing that you could do. My dad worked out. He, was, he ran track. He, he lettered all four years in high, in high school. So he had eight letters in cross country and track, right? So he was an athlete. So my dad used to say to me, George, there's nothing you can do today that's more important than exercising. Nothing you mm -hmm. can do, right? And I never really listened to that advice. I knew, I heard it. It sounds cliche. I, I, knew, I heard it. I knew it was right. I knew it mm -hmm. was right. But I, I don't know if it was laziness, because I'm not generally you know, thought of as lazy. Um, but... I never was drawn to that um, 
you know, take care of myself mentality, right? Mm -hmm. Eat well, exercise. And now I'm 62 years old and now it's become a priority in my life, right? So now um, I've, I've learned to eat better. I've learned to sleep better. I've learned to exercise more. But it took me 60 years to acquire those lessons, right? Well, you're very fortunate to have made it to 60. Yeah, yeah. Before learning it. Yeah. So what is your favorite quote? Robert F. Kennedy, only those who dare to fail greatly can ever hope to achieve greatly. High risk, high reward. What advice do you have for someone who just got out of college? Sharpen your sword. So essentially your mind, your brain, is, is your tool, it's your weapon, it's your sword, right? It's something that you're gonna carry with you throughout your life, wherever you go, right? So understand that everything that you learn is sharpening that sword, that brain, right? Mm. And so if you're in class and, and, and you're listening to a lecture on algebra and you're saying to yourself, you know, hey, I'm gonna be a rap artist. I don't need algebra. I don't need to learn anything about algebra, okay? It's not about algebra. Mm. It's about sharpening your sword. Mm. You are learning algebra because the practice of learning algebra sharpens your sword. It makes your brain that much more formidable. It develops neural pathways that can um, help you learn other things more quickly that mm. you do wanna know, right? So, so constantly be sharpening your sword, constantly be de devouring information. That would be one of the main things that I would tell them. And then the second thing I would tell them is open your mind, okay? Frank Zappa once said, a mind is like a parachute. It doesn't work if it isn't open. Okay? That's good. You are going to be experiencing the most rapid and radical change in human history over the next 10 to 20 years. You and your generation will experience the most rapid and radical changes in, his, in, in society that any generation has experienced in the same amount of time. Okay? So think of it like you're dropping out of a plane. You're jumping out of, out of a plane and you're plummeting to the ground. That's the speed at which things are going to move. And you have a parachute. And the parachute is your brain. But it doesn't work Unless if it isn't open. open. Yes, perfect. Okay? Yeah. Doesn't okay. work. So that's the argument that I usually have when people talk to me about that college isn't, it's just a piece of paper, right? I, as entrepreneurs, I still find value in college strictly because of the point that you made with sharpening your sword, like algebra, you learn the intangibles yeah, in yeah. college. Yeah. You learn to network, you learn discipline, you learn how to speak with people and how to communicate. And I think I took a lot of things that aren't necessarily from my degree, but from the things that college has, or college that it brings. So who is the most exceptional person that you've met and why? Wow, um, I've met some really exceptional people. Um, I've met presidents, I've met vice presidents, I've met Supreme Court justices, U.S. Supreme Court justices, um, I've met movie stars, um, I've met celebrities, I've met Olympic athletes, I've met all sorts of people. Um, Anybody that impacted your life in a certain way? One of, you know, I was, I was thrilled to meet Justice Anton Scalia. Um, who recently passed away, and I was thrilled to meet Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, so someone have, who has spent such a large portion of my life in the law, 
and someone who has argued before the Supreme Court. I argued before the Supreme Court and Scalia and Ginsburg were part of the court at the time. Um, I would say that meeting them and, and Justice Roberts, Justice John Roberts, um, those would be probably the most extraordinary people that I've met. Perfect. So lastly, George, let us, my listeners know, as people get bigger and stronger, lastly, we have to stay grounded. So what are you grateful for? I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my wife and my daughter, my sisters, my nephews and nieces. Um, I'm grateful for everyone that is part of um, my loving, nurturing circle, um, which I consider to be my family and my close friends. Um, I'm most grateful for that. I'm grateful that, uh, that I've had all the opportunities that I've had in life um, and the privileges that I've had. Um, I'm grateful to live in what I think is the greatest country on earth and the greatest hope for humanity. Um, I'm grateful that I still have my full faculties in my mind and that uh, um, I feel that Aristotle said that you're most wise at 60 and I'm 62. And so um, I'm grateful to be 62 and to have all my faculties and to know what I know. And, uh, and I'm excited about the future and I'm excited about using what I know to make the future better, not only for me and for my family, but for as many people as, as, as I can possibly reach. And for what it's worth, we just met. For what it's worth, we just met, and um, you've already impacted my life. I mean, just being able to hear your stories, you've been to your experiences, introducing me to small things like this. I want to thank you, and I hope we can do a lot more things together. So let's go ahead and roll out the red carpet for you, let people know where they can learn more about you, what you're doing, and okay. what you're working on. Well, so the, uh, the first thing that I'd want them to know about is this book called Millennial Samurai, right? And so Millennial Samurai is, is an, I believe it's an important book. I believe that it's an important tool. I wrote it as a tool for my daughter and for my nephews and nieces so that they would have a roadmap to success, so that they um, would know how to develop the right mindset for the 21st century. So it's called Millennial Samurai, A Mindset for the 21st Century. It's written in a very unique way where the chapters are very short, um, they're only one to three pages each, and they cover a broad range of topics. Everything that I think you need to know about, I put into that book. So there are 182 chapters, but the chapters are so short and enjoyable that it's like Lay's potato chips. Once you eat one, you're going to want to move on to the next. You, once, you, once you consume one chapter, you're going to say, the investment that I made in reading this chapter was so short and so painless, and I got so much out of it that I can't wait to read the next one because I'm more than willing to invest the same amount of time to get the same reward. And as you go through the book, you'll find that the rewards keep increasing mm -hmm. and that you learn more and more, and, and it becomes more full of things that you didn't know. Half the things that are in this book that I wrote in 2019 I did not know 
in my mm -hmm. 60 years of life, I did not know by the time I wrote the book. So mm -hmm. I had to research these things, I had to learn about them, and then I had to distill all that information and download it into these short, brief chapters that give you the essentials mm -hmm. on all these important topics. So if I didn't know half this stuff, when I was 60, there's a real high probability that you don't know, or the listener or the viewer doesn't know mm -hmm. half the things that are in there. Yes. So you're gaining a tremendous amount of knowledge. You're being taught how to think critically. You're being taught what kind of a mindset you need. You're being taught about opening your mind. You're being taught about communication, collaboration, negotiation, creativity commitment, courage, overcoming your fears, all of these things that you need to know. It's the perfect book for a parent to give a child, for a young person like yourself to get on their own, um, for you to share with your brothers and sisters or your, you know, your, your other members of your family. So that uh, is what I'd like listeners and, and uh, viewers to, to um, find out more about. Yeah, and if I may, yeah. so I, I read this book and it only took me a week to read. The chapters were so short, like you said, it is like a Lay's potato chip because they're so short, there's no fluff, and you go right into it. And it's, the transition in the book is a smooth transition. First we go into the personality, into the intangibles, and then we get into more of how we should react, how should we act in the professional world. And so it's a great read. If I had this when I was in college, it's like it's up there with how to win friends and influence people, right? Because it's, it's one of those things that you can really use to boost your career forward, boost your thinking forward, and help a bunch more people. And a lot of these things, most people learn the hard way, right, from experience. And so I absolutely love this book. I recommend it to everybody. It's an easy read, and it's a great gift. Thank you. Thank you. So, so that's something I want them to know about, and uh, they can follow me on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. Uh, connect with me. It's George J. Chanos, C-H-A-N-O-S. And uh, they can also go to LimitlessThinking.com, and they can sign up and join Limitless and become part of an empowerment community that can literally transform their life. Um, so that's, uh, that's what I'm doing. Perfect. Thanks, George. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening, guys. People will inspire you or drain you, and it seems like you chose wisely today. You just spent time with George Chanos and Christian Perez. Catch you next time with a new guest on the next episode of the Masters of Life podcast. See ya.